0: Tick-tock, tick-tock, thus goes the clock, real time. We sleep in real time, we eat in real time, we work in real time, we play in real time. But what about our Christian faith? Do we live it out, really, in real time? Join us for the sermon series, Christianity in Real Time. If you can stand, stand with me, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that the ending of this letter is not just about adding words to the end to wrap things up. That what is here is of massive and critical importance to us. Because what is here is your communicating by your Spirit through James the truth about the church family. What it means to be a part Of the church family, and how critical that is not just for the church family, but to the world, and especially the immediate world around us to which we are called to be witnesses. Illumine by your Holy Spirit this word that you have given by the same Spirit and illumine our minds today, we pray to hear it and to heed it, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The church is called to be in the world. We're called to be in the world as a witness to the world, but we're called to be in the world, not as the world. We don't get our directives from the world. The world does not say to us, this is what you would, we would like you to be. And this is what we would like you to do. And then we say, amen. We will try to be everything you want us to be and do everything you want us to do because we have such a passion to reach the world. No, the world is governed by the spirit of God through the word of God and the church is distinctively different from the world. No, we're different in our devotion. Now, we're devoted to the lordship of Jesus and the mandates of scripture. Our devotion is to exalt Jesus by obeying the Word of God. We're different in our direction. We're about advancing the kingdom of God in the world as we worship God and study His Word and then go to do what God has called us to do. We're different in our duty. We have one message as a church to give to the world, and that is the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And our duty is to declare that message wherever we go and wherever we live. We are different in our desires. Our dominating desire is to give praise to God by living together as the church under the lordship of Jesus by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The church is not like the world Uh, The church is distinctively different by God's design from the world. So when you walk into a church gathered in worship and you are dominated in all that you are and do by the ways of the world, it should feel weird and strange to you. It should be an environment that is unusual to you, one that you feel a bit uncomfortable in because you're not accustomed to being in this kind of environment. No church should be praised by being the kind of church that when people from the world come in, say, we feel really good about being here because it feels just like the concert we attended last night. We're different. And yet here is our burden. As a believer in a local church, we have a burden. I pray you have this burden. You have family members that do not know Jesus, many of you. You have friends who do not know Jesus, many of you. You have people with whom you work and attend school that do not know Jesus, and you want them to come to Jesus as Lord So you want to meet them somewhere in the middle. You want to come in some way toward where they are so that you can bring them by the grace of God to where you are as a faithful follower of Jesus. And yet the scripture is clear. We will never reach the world by accommodating who we are to the world. We will only reach the world by living and working and loving and sharing together as a church family as it is defined by God. So what does that look like? What does it look like for us to be that kind of family, a church family Bound together by the Holy Spirit under the Lordship of Jesus. At the end of the book of James, James gives us three truths. I want you to see these three truths today, and I want us to hear what James is saying to us here. The first truth is found in verse 12. The third truth is found in verses 19 and 20. So the first truth is really short, one verse. The third truth is equally short, two verses. But look in your Bible at that rather extensive part that begins in verse 13 and goes all the way to verse 18. It's the central and most critical part of what James is saying to us here. But the three are tied together. So we're going to look very briefly at the first one and in the end, look very briefly at the third one. And in the middle, we're going to settle down a bit on what is the most critical component here. And it's about how we are to be a church family. But there are three things, three truths that James sets before us here. And the first is found in the final warning that he gives in the book of James in verse 12. Look at it. But above all, my brothers, above all, this means beyond everything else. This is of first importance. This is critical to you. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, what James is saying here is very simple. It's very straightforward. It's very succinct. Uh, Put in very simple, succinct, straightforward words, if you and I profess to be believers, we need to settle the issue of the lordship of Jesus in our lives, and we need to settle it now. now. There's no place to equivocate about that. You and I know this biblically. There is no such thing as Jesus saving you from your sins and not being the Lord of your life. That's impossible. That's biblically, scripturally impossible. When Jesus saves us from our sins, he takes over our lives and we bring our lives by his grace under his lordship. We say yes to him. Now, that means every one of us in this room have said one of two words to Jesus. We've either said, Jesus, yes, exclamation point, you are Lord, or no, you are not. Now, there's no room for maybe here. There's no room here for, well, some days yes, some days no, There's no room here for postponement. James is not talking here about taking oaths in a court of law. That's not the issue. Nor is it the issue for Jesus when he teaches this same truth in the Sermon on the Mount. This verse is connected very closely with the third commandment. God says, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That simply means if you say that God is your Lord and you are loving him and living for him, don't live as if he's not. He is either Lord or he isn't. It's a summons. It's a very clear summons for us to settle the lordship issue. I really believe that we have lots of people in our churches that really believe that Jesus has saved them from their sins but they know he is not Lord of their lives and they somehow have been taught that's okay. Maybe later, maybe sometime down the road. No, now, now I beg you settle the Lordship issue in your life. He either is or isn't. And if you've not yet submitted and surrendered to him as Lord, no matter what else you've done, Today, as He calls you by His Spirit, then submit to Him and surrender to Him, bow before Him and worship Him, repent, turn from your sins and turn to Him and trust Him to save you and secure you to Himself. That's the first truth that's found here in this passage. But now we turn to the extended truth that's found here, and it's the truth about the church family. You'll notice on the screen that a church is a family of followers of Jesus who gather in the name of Jesus to worship God in the power of the Holy Spirit so that through the right preaching and teaching of the Bible, we can grow in likeness to Jesus and we can live in the world as his witnesses. Do you know what happens when you settle the Lordship of Jesus in your life? You can know that you've done that because the first desire that God birthed in you by his spirit is a desire to be the people of God. You know, one of the horrible things about the pandemic has been the numbers of people that have not been in church as we've gathered to worship. But you know, one of the beautiful things for me as a pastor, the numbers of people that I have heard say, I'm not there now, but I can't wait to get back. Praise God. Praise God. That's a Christian. That is the desire, the dominating desire of every child of God. We cannot live in insulation and isolation in our individualism and in our personal relationship with God privately expressed. We know because of the power of the Spirit that we are drawn compellingly into a church family. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of a church family. James spends some time here talking about the church family. Listen to what he says. We, we, we gather every week with people facing different circumstances. We're not all at the same place. Is anyone among you suffering? Uh, The word here means to feel bad. It, It literally means bad passions. It can be everything from feeling bad physically to feeling bad emotionally. Uh, There are some days that you'll come to gather for worship and you just don't feel good emotionally. Any of you like that? You're just down. You just got what we called in Lincoln and growing up the grubs. You don't know why you got them, but you got them. Then there are your obnoxious people who show up every Sunday just bouncing off the wall doing jumping jacks and shouting to Jesus every week. We're at different places. See anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? I love the word cheerful because it literally means to feel good. Not in a James Brown kind of way, but to feel good. What are you doing if you feel good? You are to sing praise. The word means to sing the psalms. That's a wonderful thing about a church family. We gather to worship God, and there are people here who have the mullet and there are people here who are overjoyed in Jesus that day, and they lift their hands and they sing the songs of praise, and those who are suffering are not looking at those who are singing and saying, Get over it! They're looking at them and being encouraged. Uh, They need that joy that day. We come together and we come from different perspectives. And every week we need to honor that. We need to know that. We need to recognize that God doesn't expect us to come Sunday after Sunday and all of us be at the same place. Church is made up of different people coming from different perspectives. Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone cheerful? These are opposite ends of the Spectrum together in the worship of God. We desire when we gather to obey Scripture. James begins in verse 14 to deal with a particular case, and we're going to spend some time with this in just a few moments, but here I want you to see that this church is obedient to Scripture. Is anyone among you sick Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This church is properly ordered. It has these spiritual leaders, a plurality of elders in the church. They are seeking to obey God, to do church the way God has designed that church be done. They want to obey the word of God. I wonder sometimes if you and I recognize this, sometimes I, I think that we think that churches located in different places do church according to where they're located. You know that church down in Waycross? You know those people down in Waycross? You can't just do church anyway in Waycross, you've got to do it the way the people of Waycross do church. Or that church in Waynesboro. You know that church in Waynesboro? You gotta know the Waynesboro way before you can do church in Waynesboro. Uh, The Bible never teaches that location determines the way we live under the Lordship of Jesus. Uh, The church has one mission given by God and that mission is the same throughout the world. It does not change. And the way we order the church does not change. There's not one way for one place and another way for another place. There's one way for every place. The church knows that. The church also knows that the issue of ultimate importance is spiritual Anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and look at the next part. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. We know that. A church knows that, that at the core of everything we are is our relationship with Jesus. And when our relationship with Jesus is out of sorts, whether we are believers or not, everything else is out of sorts. And the church knows, the church knows that the most important thing we do is pray. We don't trivialize prayer. We treat prayer in the way that God treats it. Some word for prayer in this text in this passage, it's used seven times. Different words are used for different ways of praying here. They're all translated as pray or prayer. But the most important thing we do as a church is pray. Look at the, the number of times we pray in a worship service here. You go visit a church somewhere, you ought to look at two things, only two things. Not what kind of songs they sing, not what kind of music they're involved in. Look at two things. How much do they pray? How much scripture do they read? And in preaching and teaching, do they expound the word of God? That's a church. And We've added this. Season, the pastoral prayer. Do you know in the 18th century, 19th century, into the middle of 20th century, every Baptist church had a pastoral prayer, a time when the pastor prayed over different issues in the world and in the lives of the people. I got famous on Facebook because one of our wonderful children posted about how long my prayer was. Last time my grandchildren were here, my youngest grandson, on the way home in the truck, he said, Gee Al, I liked your sermon but we got to work on your praying (laughs) because it was much too long. Well, we, we, we want to make sure come to a deacon's meeting here. It's saturated in prayer. Come to an elder's meeting. It's saturated in prayer. Sinclair Ferguson says that the future of the church in the world is tied to the life or death of the prayer meeting. You want to know where a church is, really, spiritually? Come to the prayer meeting and see what is going on in the prayer meeting. God's people are people who pray. If anyone is sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I want you to see, I want you to see in verses 14 through 18 what James is doing here. It is so important for us to see this. He's tying together the physical, the mental, the emotional, the relational, and the spiritual, and he's focusing on the spiritual, and he's calling us as God's people to pray. Prayer is critical. Prayer is central. Not everybody can preach or teach God's Word because not everybody's called to do that. And not everybody can sing in the choir because not everybody's called to do that or equipped to do it. Not everybody can serve in relationship to what goes on in the infrastructure of the church, in terms of the finances, and in terms of the building and in terms of the ground. Not everybody can do that because not everybody has those gifts. But you know what everybody in a church can do? They can pray. I believe that's why God makes as central to the life of the church that we be a praying people. And he ties together here through two words and one concept, the absolute power of God's people praying. It's non-negotiable praying as a church family. Surely we pray in our quiet times. Surely we pray in our family gatherings beyond the blessing over the meal. But here it's the church. Here's the church through the elders in part, but through everybody gathering. Listen to what he says. He ties together here The spiritual, the mental, the emotional, the relational, and the physical. So he says, is anyone among you sick? The word here means somebody who's so weak they can't get up. You know what he's describing here? He's describing someone who's gotten so sick that they so desperately want to be at the gathering of the church, but they can't. They can't make it. They can't walk. They're on a sick bed, and they can't get up. So they send a message to the church and say, let the elders, I want the elders to come and I want them to pray over me. Now I want you to see the focus here because the focus is not on anointing with oil. The focus is on the prayer in the name of the Lord. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. That's in the middle, in the name of the Lord, seeking the will of God. Warren Wiersbe says, we don't ever pray to get God to do our will. That is heresy. We pray that our lives would be conformed to the will of God, no matter what that is. And call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. The oil could have been medicinal could have been but most likely it's a symbol of the presence and power of god we haven't been able to do this in some time but when we had uh, the lord's supper the way i like to have the lord's supper people coming to the front and only god knows when we will do that again but we used to have me or someone else that were here and we had anointing oil and if you wanted us to pray over you you would come to me or the other whoever the other person was we would anoint you with oil that's biblical It is what God says in his word. Let that person call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. And the prayer of faith. Uh, There's no phrase in scripture more corrupted than that one. The prayer of faith is a prayer that's focused on God, that's submitted to the Word of God, that's surrendered to the will of God. We're looking to God and we're asking God's will to be done because God's will is always right and it's always good. That's the prayer of faith. And it will save. Now, that's the first word. That word is used in the Bible most often for spiritual salvation, and it is also used for physical salvation. The two are intertwined here. Is this a sick man? Yes, this is a very sick man, but the focus is both on his sickness, his healing, and on his spiritual condition. You and I know, you and I know that these things are tied together. Do you know you can be hurting physically? Some of you know this. You can be hurting physically. Does it affect you emotionally? Does it affect you spiritually? Absolutely. You're having a spiritual struggle that you don't want anybody to know about. You're struggling in your relationship to God, but you don't want to talk to anybody. Does that affect you emotionally? Can it affect you physically? Absolutely. God has made us so that this is all tied together, but God has made it very clear that the core of every physical, emotional, relational, mental struggle when we get to the foundation has to do with our relationship with God, and it has to do with our relationship with God because we live in a sinful world. And that sinful world causes the conditions for all kinds of dilemmas and darkness and disease and things that we cannot explain and understand. But I don't want you to miss this. The sinful world also is filled with sinners, and sinners make sinful choices. And you and I can make sinful choices in our lives for which there are consequences that don't show up till years later because of those sinful choices. And it affects us spiritually. Don't you and I know that we can make sinful choices that have consequences and those consequences come, but they do not keep us from experiencing. Listen to this the grace and goodness of God and his forgiveness of our sin. If you have sinned, you know your sin is the cause of, you know, you just know as a believer because God has revealed this to you, your sin is the cause of what is going on. Then you need to confess your sins. Verse End of verse 14. God will save you. God will save you spiritually. God will save you in other ways as well. The second word that's found here that shows this interconnection is in verse 15 as well, will raise him up. It's used most often for the resurrection of the dead at the last day. Believers raised up and brought into the presence of God, but can also be used of raising up off a sick bed. It's used in both ways. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. I don't think this means that we're to stand up in the church and say, Hey, I'm a sinner, and this is what I did last week. No. No. But I think every brother and sister in this room, and I pray you've got this, has someone that's holding your feet to the fire to whom you can go and confess your sin and do it openly and willingly and voluntarily and lovingly so that they can priest you and offer you the grace of the forgiveness of your sins. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I don't know whether verses 16 through 18, and I just want to address them quickly. I don't know whether verses 16 through 18 have ever disturbed you. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. God works through our prayers. God answers our prayers. God does miraculous, supernatural things through the prayers of his people. There's no doubt about that. But then he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months it did not rain on earth, and then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, I can't answer for you how I remember this, but I remember preaching this text in about 1974, first time I ever preached it. And there was one part of this that really bothered me because it says Elijah was a man just like us. Now, I was a young Christian at that point. I had never read Elijah's story. So I thought, if he's like us, I need to figure out what kind of dude he is. So I went and read his account. This is the preacher that challenged 450-plus pagan prophets and asked them to pray to their God and see if their God answered. And when it was his turn, he took big five-gallon buckets of water, drums of water, and drenched the altar until water's running all around the altar. And he stood back and said, God consumed that wet altar by fire and he confronted Ahab, the king of Israel and told him it's not going to rain for three years. Then Elijah went and prayed and what happened? Didn't rain. I'm reading this stuff and saying, I ain't like him. And he's not like me. But then I kept reading. And Elijah's all up into Elijah. He's had all this success. He's walking around proud. (laughs) He gets an email from Queen Jezebel. Now, Queen Jezebel was the kind of woman, if she didn't like you, she killed you. Email said to Elijah, Elijah. Elijah, what you've done to my prophets, I'm going to do to you before sunset. A woman got after him on his case and he got scared. I can identify with that. Right? Yeah, I got this one. And he ran and he hid. He hid so far in a cave that God had to come to him and say, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah says, God, you know this. I'm the only one left. There's nobody who loves you but me. God, if you didn't have me, you wouldn't have anybody. And look what you let happen to me. God said, I got 7,000 people who belong to me in Israel, and you don't know any of them. How's Elijah like us? In your Christian life, I promise you, you've had highs so high that you thought you could go no higher. And you've had lows so low that you thought you could go no lower. And what's the one thing you can do in both those places that's so important? You can pray. And every time you pray, God hears you. This is what a church is. A church prays. A church prays formally and a church prays informally. A church prays for each other. I wonder what would happen if even in our church family, Mickey were to say to Marty one Sunday morning, Mick, uh, Marty, I, I'm really having a tough time right now and I need you to pray for me. What should Marty say right then? Let's pray right now. That's a church family. What we are held together by is the Word of God and the Spirit of God under the Lordship of Jesus, and we pray. We pray for one another, and we do it sincerely and honestly. We know how to be honest with each other. We know how to be transparent with each other. We know, we know how to share our hearts with each other, where we are and what's going on. Elijah was just like us, and he prayed. Here's the third truth very quickly. A church family goes after the lost. James is describing here somebody who was in the church and Walked away from the church, but James never says he walked away from the church because he didn't walk away from the church. He walked away from the truth. He left the church and he left the truth. Which would indicate that he never belonged to the truth. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. The church loves those who wander away enough to go take them the truth of God. Not Come back to church. We need you back in church. We want that. But what they need is the truth of God, the truth of the gospel. We go to where they are with the truth of God. And we love them and care for them and minister to them and listen to them. We pay attention to them. In the name of Jesus, we share the gospel with them to see Jesus save them by his grace and bring them back into his church. James says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, wandering from the truth, all these words indicate lostness, will save this man's soul or this woman's soul from death, and he will cover a multitude of sins. Not everybody who professes to know Jesus knows Jesus. Not everybody who makes a decision for Jesus lives in devotion to Jesus. And most often over time, they will wander away from the truth. Don't leave them. A shepherd had a hundred sheep, one little lamb wandered away. What did the shepherd do? So, what are you going to do? Do you know those who've wandered from the truth? A church goes and gets those people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A church family lives under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We've settled the lordship issue. We care for one another as we pray for one another, prayer being a priority of our life together. And we go get that sheep with the good news of the gospel. Father, We pray that beyond these days of this pandemic, when we see more and more people returning to our church family, for which we are so profoundly grateful, we pray that you would keep our eyes and ears open to those who during this time have wandered not from the church, but they've wandered from your truth. Grant us, O oh God, such love and care and compassion for them that we would weep. We would weep over their souls. And that our weeping would turn to running And our running would be expressed in caring. And our caring would come to words calling people to Jesus to settle the lordship of Jesus. Spirit, oh spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.